After years of creating successful first-person shooters, the development team at Bungie decided that it was time to do something different. Gone were the science fiction elements, the alien threat, and the vast openness of space. With open arms, they embraced fantasy, monsters, and they kept their feet firmly on the ground. Gone, too, was the first-person shooter that they had become so well-known for. In its place, they welcomed real-time strategy, a gamble in trying something new. But this roll of the dice paid off in the form of an award-winning strategy game, and on its heels, it came time to make a sequel. But old habits die hard, and the team found itself back in space finding aliens. And somehow, somewhere, the team created one of the greatest first-person shooters of all time. Today, we're going to look back at the development of Halo and the early history of its development studio, Bungie. So come and spectate our own deathmatch on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 168th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we'll tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, a technology, just whatever the heck I want, as long as it's relevant to this week in history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we're going to learn the history of Bungie and Halo Combat Evolved, which was originally released for the Microsoft Xbox on November 15, 2001. I'm David Kasson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who believes himself to be a cybernetically enhanced super soldier. He's my brother, Rob Kasson. Rob, when the hell did they cybernetically enhance on you? The only thing that matters, Dave. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I, I, okay, all right. And also joining us, one of my best friends, my college roommate, Eric Ball. Eric, I don't have a good one for you, but since it's your first time on the podcast, your stomach reaction, earliest gaming memory tradition. What my you, earliest what? gaming memory. Yes, oh. earliest game memory. Whatever first comes to mind, don't overthink it. Yeah, it's going to be Nintendo Entertainment System and Super Mario Brothers. Nice. Mine's mine was mine's always Nintendo and baseball. I remember seeing the the baseball game before Super Mario. Yeah. Rob, Mario just you just couldn't get enough. No, you couldn't get enough. Rob, I don't remember what yours was. What was yours? You know, at this point, I can't remember either. <laughs> I know that Final Fantasy VII is up there, but yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. Probably. I don't know if that's the earliest that I can think of, but I definitely watched you play the shit out of that game. Yeah, I did play the shit out of that game. I loved it's just that one. So strange to think that, like, your first gaming memory is Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> <laughs> Of amazing games and everything. You had a video game nerd for a brother and you get Final Fantasy 7, which is epic in every way. But dang, does it make me just feel old sometimes? I, I, I know, I know. Well, that's the fun of this is that like 10, 15 years of gaming, he doesn't know anything about. That's the that's like the most fun about this. I All know right. I've yelled at him listening to you in the car. I've yelled. 
How do you not know? <laughs> right? That's what like, it is. How do you not know? What do you mean you don't know? How do you? What do you mean you've never heard of this? Yeah, I, I do that every week. All right, Eric. What have you been pl- playing? Any th- interesting games lately? Dead Space. Well, Dead Space remake. My goodness, do they keep the creep factor up in that one? They did a good job on it. I'm playing it too, and I'm enjoying it so far. It's definitely a good survival horror game. If that's oh, what you're into, sure. I hope they make the sequel and then fix the trilogy. And then exactly fix the trilogy. Exactly. <laughs> Rob, what have you been playing this week? Well, Dave, this week has seen the normal with the RuneScape, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of PC building sim, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a little bit of payday. I do not believe that there were any other games this week. Eric, you could play Payday. We played Payday yesterday. That's cross-platform. You could play Payday 3 with us. Just see Payday that. 3? Yeah, it came out. It's on Game Pass, right? Yeah, we're, we've been playing a lot of Game Pass games lately because, I mean, it's easy when you know everyone's got it. So Heck yeah. Yep. What about yourself, Dave? What have you been playing this week? Rocket League, Payday, Dead, I, you know, I'm in the middle of Red Dead Redemption 2 again, and and Valheim. I started playing Valheim again, so little little bit of column A, B, C, and D. They're completely unrelated games to one another. Oh, fun yeah, times. sounds like a fun week. I'm going to go on a limb here and say we all know what Halo is, right? Yeah, it's something it's, that's it's a song, head. right? It's the song. It's Didn't definitely going to do it. Yeah, she did. She did. She did the theme song for the video game, actually. So. Oh, OK, OK. See, Rob, you're catching up. Yeah. <laughs> Rob, I actually don't know because this is like when I went away to college. Was Halo big for you and your friends? The original, not so much. I actually never owned an original Xbox. So once the series made it to the 360, yes, absolutely. It was one of the most played games for us. Uh, I know that in one of the games, I believe it was three uh, that Damon would have been living with us at the time. He and I stayed up all night going through the campaign. Many times, not just once. Plus, the online multiplayer is just fantastic at the time. And Eric. Halo would have come just before we knew one another. So yeah, I would have released my senior year of college. <laughs> I remember picking that up with like four controllers and just playing with my roommates at the time. And that was just the kind of insanity of us all having a great time. It was like Goldeneye on steroids. It was definitely like old nine steroids. That would have been that would have been my my I, I would have been a senior in high school when you were a senior in college. So Rockets best game mode ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is it with every one of these multiplayer first person games? We always default because you just brought up Goldeneye, right? We yeah. always default to the blowy uppy things because in Goldeneye, it was always mines in the in the what the factory one or what mm-hmm. which and then we got halo and it was rockets and well think about console gaming in 
first person shooters at that time. It didn't exist. No, no, it definitely didn't exist. Definitely exist. And and we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We're, we'll get to that. I knew gonna, you would get to that. We think way that. too alike sometimes. So Jason Jones and Alex Seropian, they first met in an artificial intelligence course of all things at the University of Chicago. At the time, the University of Chicago didn't even offer a computer science degree. Seropian was wrapping up his bachelor's in mathematics that had a concentration in computer science. There wasn't a computer science program like department at the time. So Jason Jones had become interested in programming in high school. He learned how to program in basic and assembly language for the Apple II. And after high school, he spent a year programming for a computer aided design company before he decided to attend classes at the University of Chicago. Alex Seropian, on the other hand, you know, he was also into programming. He, by the time they had met in this artificial intelligence course, uh, Seropian had actually had a few games already under his belt. His first game was a self-published Pong clone called Gnop, which is Pong backwards. It was written for the Apple Macintosh. The only real notable thing about it is that it features the sound of Seropian's chuckle which is what's triggered when you lose. (laughs) That's great. The game itself was free, but Seropian sold the game source code for $15. There were at least a few people that took him up on that offer. In May of 1991, he decided that he was going to form his own company called the Bungie Software Products Corporation. And he did so in order to publish his next game, which was Operation Desert Storm. So Operation Desert Storm is a top-down tank shooter, also created for the Apple Macintosh. It was based on the events of the first Gulf War, features about 20 top-down levels, and culminates in a mission set in Baghdad where your final enemy is Saddam Hussein. You know, all Gulf War stuff. Seropian basically scraped up the funding, To publish the game from friends and family, he self-assembled the game boxes. He wrote all the discs himself. He ended up selling about 2,500 copies this way, which was a success by standards, his standards at the time. So he set off looking for his next great game. Somewhere while doing so, he finds himself in Jason Jones' dorm room. Jason Jones is working on slash playing a game that Jones was creating just for fun. And... Seropian basically convinces him to clean the game up and sell it. Now, this game was called Minotaur, the Labyrinth of Crete. It was developed and published by Bungie for release at some point in 1992, also for the Macintosh. See a theme here? Macintosh. It's a role-playing game. It is best known because it was a multiplayer role-playing game. That was incredibly rare at the time. Most Macintosh computers didn't have modems. You know, people who had modems, you know, modems were rare. The internet or online, like, you know, phone line connections, because we didn't even really have the internet in 1992. That was even rarer. But this was an online only game. Not really online only. It had a single player mode, but the single player mode didn't have uh, like an end game. There was no goal to it. And people really only used it to learn how to use the various items that they would find in the game. Because, of course, it's easier to figure it out when you don't have the threat of another player looming over you, you know? The tagline of Minotaur 
was kill your enemies, kill your friends' enemies, kill your friends. I bring that up because that shows up in the menu of some of the Halo games later on. They they Bungie is really good about like paying homage to their past, so to speak. So it was Jones' game to begin with. He finished up the programming. Seropian worked on the des- you know some of the design and marketing, like Operation Desert Storm. It sold. You know, they assembled the boxes. They wrote the discs. This time there were two people doing it. So, you know, double this, double the effectiveness, I guess. And like Operation Desert Storm, they sold about 2,500 copies. Successful. So they decided to continue to work together. They consider this the beginning of Bungie. And Seropian and Jones, despite the fact that Joe, you know, Seropian did it by himself, they are considered in Bungie's history the co-founders of Bungie. And it kind of all starts at this point, even though Desert Storm was technically the first Bungie product. It's kind of weird. So the team decides to focus on the Mac platform. They're both familiar with Macs. That's all they've both been writing in. And because it was easy. In a later interview, Jones recalled the PC market was really cutthroat, but the Mac market was all friendly and lame. (laughs) So it was easier to compete. Well, working on Minotaur. Jason Jones had been introduced to Wolfenstein 3D. I think Wolfenstein 3D would have been 92. And he was in awe of its 3D graphics. Like everyone else at the time, we were all in awe of the 3D graphics when Wolfenstein came out. And that inspired him to create a rough 3D graphics engine for the Mac that simulated walls with trapezoids and rectangles. You know what I just thought of? What's that, Dave? The first time I ever saw Wolfenstein 3D was in my in like the computer school lab because we didn't have like a, a PC computer that would do that at the time. I don't know why that memory just popped in my head. I don't think I ever brought that up in the Wolfenstein episode. But yeah, I remember seeing Wolfenstein for the first time in school of all places. Shouldn't have been in elementary school. It was high school for me, and that's the reason you wanted to go to the high school computer lab. <laughs> I think I think I would have been like in the what 92 third grade fourth grade something like that yeah 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 so so the team you know they're making a 3d engine they decide what they want to do with the 3d engine and initially that they find that they're inspired to convert Minotaur which sold decently well into a 3d game But as they begin to work on converting it from a top-down view to 3D, they find that it really doesn't work well. So they decide to scrap that idea and redesign, basically design a game. Aside from needing to redesign Minotaur, they also wanted to create a game that wasn't online, basically only. They... Networks and modems were still really rare in, in, in Macintosh computers, so they kind of hoped to make a game that had a decent single-player experience so they could have more success than they had with Minotaur. So, of course, with all this in mind, it might as well be a new game, which is exactly what they decided on. The team falls into its usual usual roles. Seropian handles the business side. He's doing the box art, the marketing, all the promotional materials, Jason Jones is working on programming the game, writing the story. He also ends up writing the game's manual for this next one. In order to streamline the process, Jason develops an editor that helps him build out levels faster. And for this one, they recruit a friend. One of Jason's friends, Colin Brent, 
he does most of the artwork for their next title. And in general, they all kind of agree now that by having someone else do the art, it made the rest of the game better because they all kind of got into their lane and got much better because of it. So they began work on the game storyline and the levels. It's January of 1993, and the team decides that they want to release this game to the world at the 1993 Macworld Expo, which is held in August. Come July, the game was behind schedule, which led to Jones. Basically, he puts in 18 hour days for the entire month prior to the expo to finish the game, but he finishes it. And the team manages to have 500 shrink wrap copies of this game available for sale at the expo. Now, this game is called Pathways into Darkness. I have no familiarity with Pathways into Darkness. Eric, you ever heard of their first person shooter before? No, Marathon's the first thing I really heard from them. Yeah, yeah. Rob, you familiar with any of this early stuff? (laughs) Dude, that was my jam back in the day. (laughs) Best game. So Pathways into Darkness, their first first person shooter, so to speak. It has you assuming the role of a special forces soldier who must stop a powerful godlike creature from awakening and destroying the world. So like you go into like this ancient pyramid and it's, you know, you're traversing the tunnels of this pyramid and fighting enemies, getting to the godlike creature. Pathways into Darkness was incredibly successful. It received several awards inside Mac Games, called it their adventure game of the year. Mac World called it their best role playing game of the year. It sold more than 20,000 copies, which was a very, very difference than the 2,500 of their first couple games. And actually, in the first half of 1994, it was the third best selling Macintosh title. Anyone want to take any guesses what the first two were? Solitaire. No. They're not Why just, was that what I thought too? They're they're not <laughs> just they're not just Mac titles as a side note. They were they were Mac ports. Doom. Mm-mm. Doom would have been 95. We talked about one recently. That's why I was hoping you might throw it out there. Minotaur. <laughs> no, but it does start with an M. Mario. Mario's never been on a Macintosh. Hey, you Mist. don't know that. Hold on. Mist. Missed the best-selling PC game that basically. Well, I guess we missed that one. Oh no! Basically, the game that made the entire world want to buy PC CD-ROM drives. Number one was Missed, and number two was SimCity 2000. And then Mac is just not known for gaming. No, (laughs) Mac was not known for gaming in any way, shape, or form. So when you sell 20,000 copies of your game, you kind of have a little bit more money to play along with. So the team moves out of the, you know, probably one bedroom apartment. They're just making games in dad's couch or whatever. And they move into a studio on Chicago's South Side. Bungie composer Martin O'Donnell remembered the studio's location. He said it was a former girls school next to a crack house. Smelled like a frat house after a really long weekend and reminded staff of a locale from the Silent Hill horror video game. Quite the description. Great start. Great start. I'm seeing a new game come out of this already. That's that's exactly it. Video game designer in the Silent Hill universe. Rob, go. That's Alan Wake. That's (laughs) that's kind of Alan Wake. (laughs) Except it's author, you know. So... 
The experience of making Pathways into Darkness taught the team at Bungie two important lessons that they took forward. The first is that without a story, a game is a lesser thing. And secondly, it's a lot easier to tell a story with convincing graphics. So they took these lessons and they decided that they were going to create a sequel to Pathways. I mean, when you have a successful game, what else do you do but make another one? But, but, but. Pathways, the sequel, did not stay Pathways, the sequel. The underground passages, pyramid passages that the player would traverse in Pathways' current day setting would give way to a futuristic colony ship in space set sometime in the future. So Bungie's next game was Marathon. It, In it, you are a security officer attempting to stop an alien invasion aboard a colony ship, which is named the Marathon. Eric, I, I know probably not the, you couldn't have played the first one, but did you ender, ed, ever end up playing the second Marathon when they brought it to the Xbox? No, I did not. Yeah, me either. Rob, did you ever trip on Marathon 2? I only tripped while running a marathon. Yeah. <laughs> you tried to run a marathon? Oh, I wasn't trying to run a marathon. I just tripped while there was one going on. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Oh, man. I mean, as great as like all the controls and everything around Halo, it's so hard to go backwards in someone's repertoire and try to play those old games when you've played the better stuff. That that's very true. We talk about that. I, I I think we touch on that in this podcast. That's that is one of the hard things about going back to the old stuff is there's some games and game styles that age very well. And there's a lot that don't. Oh, when yeah, t- those rose covered glasses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when we're in this genre, these first these early first person shooters and stuff like it's really hard to look back on them because at the time they were revolutionary. Like, like when doom came out, we were all staring at the future, you know? Oh, Oh, Rob, I was wrong. Doom was December of 93. So it could have been doom. We talked about that. (laughs) Okay. So marathon was faster than pathways. It had higher resolution graphics, It had better effects. It had a storyline baked into the game. In the beginning, you found out that your shuttle had been destroyed by a berserk computer and it barely managed to make it to the, the, the marathon, the colony ship. And inside the colony ship, there were computer terminals scattered throughout that would help fill in more of the background story. I had to add that because that seems to be a recurring theme in Bungie games. No. Gotta find all the computer terminals. And yeah, you know, Doom came out in December of 93. Marathon releases in December of 94. And and Doom is one of the earliest first-person shooters in this 3D realm. You know, we get Quake a little bit. We get Half-Life in, what, 99? So we're still so early on in, in like, this genre that first-person shooting and storytelling, like, it's still not really a thing. So to have first-person shooters with stories is pretty awesome you're kind of forgetting like medal of honor and yeah and the call of duty back then that would have all been a side period yeah for sure but it's the time period when like any addition to that genre is going to be a breath of fresh air because there is so 
there's so <clears throat> to compare it to, you know? I mean, there was so little. I mean, let's be honest. There was, like, we don't know Marathon because it was specific to Macintosh, right? But, like, even in the PC realm, what would you compare it to in December of 94? A sci-fi first-person shooter with a storyline. I, I, there really isn't anything else, you know? I had to kill the Martian demons. <laughs> yes. Yes. That was my story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Doom Doom's story was flimsy. Duke but Nukem. It worked. Duke Nukem would have been that that time period. Duke Nukem would have been save babes and kill aliens. Oh, I remember my dad getting those on disc and bringing it home, being like, "I think you'll enjoy this." <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> oh man, so Marathon looked great. It played well. In August of 1994, Bungie previews a demo version at the Macworld Expo. No one knew anything about this game going into the Expo. By the last day, the Bungie booth was overrun with people. Stacks of order forms were disappearing left and right. At the Expo, people were told that the game would be finished within a few weeks of the Expo. But as they wrapped up the game, they kept finding bug after bug. A few weeks stretches into a few months. And finally, they decide they're finished with the game on December 14th, which was a little bit more than a few months after August. No, a few, a few. So it's obviously too late to ship for Christmas, but there are still some customers that paid for overnight delivery. So on December 23rd, like the three or four people that work for Bungie at this point might have been six at the most decide that they're going to try to make some people's Christmas so they basically go to the place that, you know, the little company that's uh, producing their discs and they create an assembly line and they managed to get out about 500 copies of Marathon so that people could get their game in time for Christmas of 1994. In January of 1995, there was another Macworld Expo. They started having them in different cities and the Bungie booth was described as pure pandemonium. Doug Zartman, he's one of Bungie's like earliest employees, like literally like I think he's number three. He became their PR person. He's really well known because Bungie kind of has this like sense of humor to their games where they don't take themselves seriously. And that started out with Doug Zartman. He recalls that Macro Expo. He said that Bungie employees were scooping up handfuls of cash, handing over a game box, stuffing the cash into their back pockets, then reaching back for another copy. Rep after rep after rep, a continuous rhythmic motion. By midday, our back pockets were bulging with thousands of dollars in 20s, 50s, some crisp hundreds, and untold numbers of fives and tens. So, you know, apparently they didn't know what a lockbox was at Bungie at the time. So also at the time, Bungie kind of had a system for orders that Zartman recalls. You know, a, a customer would fax, mail, or call in an order, Zartman would, you know, hand type this into a database and then fax the order over to the company that they had at the time that was like handling packaging and distribution for Bungie at the time. And leading up to this, it was working great because they were maybe getting 15 or 20 orders for games a day. But uh, the expo brought in tens of thousands of pre-orders. So Marathon put the company on a whole different level. And they ended up outsourcing that process to a company in itself. The success of Marathon never stopped. It sold incredibly well. It brought a lot of attention to Bungie. 
It was a critical success. Macworld has Marathon in its Mac Game Hall of Fame. Mac Home Journal calls it one of the top 10 Mac games of all time. In retrospect, there are historians that consider it to be the greatest Macintosh game ever written. That's not a huge library, but we'll give it credit where credit's due. And in Marathon, we see many of the things that Bungie is still known for this day. Solid network play, full 3D movement, state-of-the-art graphics, and funny enough, it even has a disembodied AI character that aids the player through the game. They never got rid of that habit either. Fun little side note, in 1996, the original Marathon was ported over to the Apple Bandai Pippin home console very short-lived console. We covered it really briefly in our Parappa the Rappa story way back in episode 64. But I, I saw the Pippin on there and I had to giggle a little bit because it's like, what the hell's a Pippin? Apple's Apple's video game console. Oh yeah, Apple tried video games. It's also a Hobbit. It is also a Hobbit, thank you. So Marathon's successful. And of course, when you have a successful game, you think about making a sequel, which they do. Marathon 2 Durandal. Marathon 2 story picks up right where Marathon leaves off, like exactly where it leaves off. This time you're crashed onto a fictional planet. And Marathon took, Marathon 2 rather, took Marathon's engine and just did everything better. They tweaked the engine. It has deeper color depths, higher resolution. Uh, Marathon 2 features a cooperative mode. That was the first time any Bungie game ever had a cooperative mode. It was a game that was bigger. It was a game that was better. It was also a game that was notoriously harder. Bungie ends up releasing it in November of 1995. A few months later, in March of 96, they announced that they would be releasing a Windows version. And let me tell you, there was a riot. Within a couple of days, Bungie received 400 angry email messages. They have like a diary online and (laughs) this is going to be a lot of swearing. So if you don't want to listen to it, I'd suggest skipping like 30 seconds. One of the worst email states, you fucking assholes have gone and done it now. You said you wouldn't create marathon for PC fucking liars. What do I have to hold above PC gamers heads now? You fuckers (laughs) bitch trick horse slut ass fuckers burden hell assholes. Wow. (laughs) you assholes ain't getting any of my money i'll fucking use a copy from a friend i mean nowadays that would be very tame standard (laughs) that's just what i get on a thursday on xbox live (laughs) all right fair enough (laughs) yeah i i know i know and Bungie knew that these would, were going to be the consequences i mean that's kind of a given you know we still have console flame wars but the PC market was it was just too huge for them not to not to move into it. You know, a good month for Mac game sales across the entirety of all the games was about six million dollars in sales. A good month for PC at the time was seventy five million dollars in sales. There was just so much opportunity in PC sales. Why wouldn't they move over to the PC? So Marathon 2 was a complete success. Which, of course spawns another so they decide to wrap up their science fiction trilogy with marathon infinity this one comes out in october of 1996 but it's only for the apple macintosh marathon 2 
was Mac and PC. And then like 11 years later in 2007, they ported it over to Xbox Live Arcade. I think it was an arcade title in 2007, or it might just be Xbox Live. Maybe the arcade would have been gone by 2007. I can't remember. Anyway, third one, Marathon Infinity, just for the Apple Macintosh. Pretty much identical to Marathon 2. Same engine, same everything, just with larger levels that were more intricate. intricate. Probably the biggest change in Marathon Infinity was the introduction of Bungie's level creating software, which they called Forge. I didn't know that Forge went back that far. Uh, And they had a physics and graphics editor called Anvil. And it was successful. Marathon Infinity was also successful. So it was time for their next great project. But speaking of the next great project, are you listening to this podcast and just thinking to yourself, I could do this. I'm more interesting than this guy. I have something interesting to tell the world. Or are you looking to start your own podcast, but you just don't know where to start? If any of these are the case, if you think you can do better than me, do it. And consider using the all-in-one podcasting tool suite of Zencaster. With Zencaster, it's super easy to record a podcast. Everyone logs in using their web browser, and you just start recording a high-quality podcast right away. It even allows you to record up to 4K video with your guests if that's how you decide to do it. And with Zencaster's multi-layered backups, you'll always have the highest quality recordings, even if the connection's unstable. And with Zencaster, you never have to worry about what you sound like. Its post-production process always makes you sound buttery smooth, like this voice. It automatically removes those ums and ahs, removes all those awkward pauses in conversation too. You can set your podcast loudness. You can reduce the background noise. I mean, you can do all these settings. You hit a single click of a button and it takes the rest. It does it all with one click of a button. And if the thought of podcasting overwhelms you because you think you need tons of different tools and services, you can relax. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, even distributing it to major destinations such as Spotify and Apple. So if you think you can do better than me, you want to start your own podcast, or maybe you're already a fellow podcaster and you want to take your podcast to the next level, we've got a deal for you. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use our offer code, all one word, memory card lane, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any of their paid plans. Sign up for Zencaster today, and you too can experience the same ease in producing your own high quality podcast as we do each week. So go out and share your ideas with the world. Yeah, they should definitely go out and produce their own hottie podcast. Definitely. I'm all for it. I'm so, just seeing the future. I'm a bender mame right now. <laughs> we'll create our own podcast with blackjacks and hookers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Bungie 2 you know, you want to make your own podcast, but back here in 90, 90 something, Bungie was throwing out new ideas to share with the world. As far back as 1995, shortly after the release of Marathon 2, the team had been throwing around ideas for kind of an indirect successor to the Marathon series. The ideas that kept being thrown out from the team always fell within their comfort zone. They were sci-fi titles, you know, artificial intelligence, aliens, that whole bit, whole bit, 
bit. And during this period, the team was exploring the concept of a vehicular combat game featuring tank battles in a futuristic setting. Internally, the project was called the Giant Bloody War Game. So Jason Jones had designed a 3D engine that could generate height-mapped graphics to visualize elevated surfaces in 3D, and he pushed the team to use this technology to realize the tank combat as a game idea. And the team was ready to commit. They were thinking about ways they wanted to ditch the idea of doing another first-person shooter after the marathon. It would have been Trilogy at this point. And they wanted to work on on the great giant bloody war game. But as the project progressed, Jones really struggled to implement a physics model that could properly simulate vehicles. So the team decided to shift gears back to what they knew back to the first person back to back to their comfort zone but there was a problem towards the end of marathon infinity the team at bungie while they were gearing up for this new project too saw screenshots of quake id software's quake they were getting trying to generate excitement and they sent screenshots out to the world and when jason jones and the team saw them They felt that their game idea was shaping up to be too similar to Quake. And after having worked on first person shooters for so long, the team really did want to do something new. So they decided that they were going to bring their experience to a real time strategy game instead. Well, kind of. They wanted to make a game that was real-time strategy, but really really wanted to differentiate this game from other real-time strategies. So I found a GameSpot preview of what would become this game. It's called Myth the Fallen Lords. And in it, Jason says, we tried real hard to come up with a term that was different from real-time. We're calling it a multi-metric tactical game. Multi-metric. I made that word up because it's not an isometric game in the conventional sense. There are many angles a player can have and many views the camera can take. And we're calling it tactical because there are no elements of the game that focus on resources or management. It's strictly a tactical game. So there you go. Multi-metric tactical game. I guess, you know. Uh, Yeah, it's something. So they knew what kind of game they wanted to make. They had the basic game mechanics. And then they decided that they wanted to make a list of the game that they didn't want to make. Right. So they make a list of all these elements that they don't want to don't want to play with, that they want to avoid, like real time strategy cliches, any reference to Tolkien and Middle Earth, any allusions to a Thorian legend. And they didn't want to do any kind of narrative involving little boys coming of age and saving the world. (laughs) Damn it. Only story that matters. I know. Speaking of Final Fantasy VII. (laughs) It all comes back to it. That's exactly right. So on the other hand, there were elements that they knew they did want to include. There were uh, 3D landscapes, polygonal buildings, reflective water, particle-based weather, battlefields littered with severed limbs, (laughs) and explosions that damaged the terrain permanently. Basically things that contributed to the visual realism of the game. They were also determined to have it have a really impressive multiplayer mode because at that point they were really well known for multiplayer because the marathon series had multiplayer Uh, and they wanted to have like a mode where like a hundred troops would appear on the battlefield at once 
and they were proud of the way they did things. Writing in 1998, programmer Jason Rager stated of this game, it doesn't take 50 people to create a major software title, period. Bungie Software barely has half that number of employees in the entire company, and we're not only developing all of our games, but publishing and distributing them as well. The Macintosh and PC versions of Myth, all of our internal tools, our online service were essentially developed by only six people, and everything shipped on time with no major glitches. So, Myth is truly the combined vision of our team, and each of us feels that it was our game. We came to work each day excited about the project, and we're damn proud of what we managed to create. So yeah, so they create Myth of Fallen Lords. It gets released to the world on November 7th, 1997. It's well-received. It's on Metacritic with an aggregate of 91 out of 100. Sells about 350,000 copies, which makes it Bungie's most successful title up until that point. PC Gamer even named it the real-time strategy game of the year. Computer Game Strategy and Macro called it their game of the year. I mean, literally the game of the year for all of them, plain and simple. So, Myth, The Fallen Lords. I never played it. I don't remember it. Either of you remember it? Yeah. Not at all. I was. So that's weird, because I was into real-time strategy games at the time, and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So, the Cess of Fallen Lords allowed Bungie to open up another studio in San Jose. This is called Bungie West. Bungie West, for the sake of history, only produced a single game before it was shut down. <laughs> It was released in January of 2001. It was a third-person action game for the Windows, Mac, and PS2 called Oni. It was a cyberpunk game with hand-to-hand combat. I Again. I swear I remember the game case for that. I, you know, I vaguely do. Yeah. Rates in the 70s, Metacritic, it sold. Okay. And so the team at Bungie proper gets to work, go, you know, well, this one team is working on Oni. The other team goes to work on a sequel to Myth called Myth 2 Soul Blighter. And while this is happening, there is another team, roughly three people that are behind closed doors working on something new. They thought that they could create a better version of Myth if it was set within their comfort zone. You know, the sci-fi setting, the you know, artificial intelligence and the aliens and, and, and all the things that Bungie was well known for that they knew and loved. If they, if they went back to their roots, they could make a better real time strategy game. So they took all the tools and technology that had been put into myth and they started to develop a real time strategy game, but they focus on science fiction, realistic physics and three dimensional terrain. Initially they call this project armor. It's using Miss Engine, and it's got a isometric camera view. You know, the team really wanted terrain that mattered because it was going to be rendered in 3D. The team wanted vehicles that really moved like vehicles, so they, they worked very hard on making those things matter. Within a week, they had changed the name to Monkey Nuts, but that didn't last very long because Jason Jones didn't want to have to admit his to his mother that he was making a game called Monkey Nuts. So they changed the name of the project to Blam with an exclamation mark. And they like continued wham? like Wham. Yeah, exactly like Wham. Blam! Blam! That's what they called it. And they continued to work on this project, these three of them. They experimented with different ways to control the units. At one point, they have a mode that attaches a camera to individual units. And that led them to the discovery 
you know, they, they basically have this mode to attach the camera and that viewpoint gets closer and closer and closer. And as they're getting into the vehicles, as the vehicles are doing something, they realize that it's more fun to have players actually drive the vehicles and then let the artificial intelligence do the pathfinding. So they begin to flesh this concept out and they realize while doing so that maybe they weren't creating a real-time strategy game, that maybe what they were doing was something else. So by mid-1998, this real-time strategy game transitioned into a third-person shooter. Jamie Grishmer, who's now famous for designing Halo's you know, console controls, he recalls seeing this game early on. He said, at first you had one gun, an assault rifle that would shoot grenades, and there was a ling- little single-person boat, which they called the Doozy. And that was the whole game. This was when 3D accelerators were really kicking off, so the number of particles you could throw up and the water reflectors, you hadn't seen this stuff yet. So it was fun to just run around on the beach and blow up palm trees for a while. (laughs) Now, famous Halo score composer Marty O'Donnell recalls, he said, Marcus showed me these early storyboards, which showed the camera as kind of a third person. It had a Marine running around and attacking an elite alien. I remember thinking that looks a lot cooler, but too bad the final game wouldn't be that because it was, you know, they were still thinking it was going to be real time strategy, third person kind of at the time. But the team continued to work on the game and knew they were making something special. So along the way, Jason Jones manages to get a meeting with Steve Jobs to show him blam. He's going to blam Steve Jobs. Which he does. Steve Jobs is impressed. Steve Jobs suggests that they debut the game to the world at the 1990 Macworld Conference and Expo. So that thing is about to happen. It's like a week five days, four days before the expo, Um, not before the expo. It's like four days before they're going to announce to the world that they're debuting a game at the expo. And they decide that Blam probably isn't a great name for this game, right? It makes sense. So Bungie had actually hired a branding firm. They suggested based on information they had at the time that the team called the game Covenant but nobody was really in love with that as a title. So people start throwing out possible names, names that the team recalls uh, being written on the board in this room include the Santa machine, Solipsis, the crystal palace, hard vacuum, star maker and star shield. But it was actually Bungie artist, Paul Russell, Paul Russell, who gave the series its name. Gressner recalled later on, he said, I actually sat too, not too far from Paul Russell, one of the artists. He was like, Covenant? That name is stupid. So he came up with five or six alternatives, one of which was Halo. And now Halo wasn't popular at first because, you know, I think that it was Seropian who said it sounds like a woman's shampoo line. But in the end, after some discussion, it was determined that it described the game enough with enough mystery that the team decided to roll with it. So Halo gets unveiled to much acclaim during the Macworld Conference and Expo. It's July 21st, 1999. Steve Jobs announces that it's going to be released simultaneously for Windows and Mac OS. It's still like a third person game at this point. Kind of reminiscent of Halo. You can actually I'll put I'll put the video in the show notes. You can go online and and see the Macworld video that they that they 
uh, showed to the world. At this point, Halo is pretty much a multiplayer game. It's that's what they had kind of worked on. They transitioned it from a multiplayer RTS to a multiplayer third person game. And still, that's really what they were focused on was the multiplayer. But as they decided to they knew that they had to, like, present something as a trailer, right? There had to be a story. There had to be some intrigue. There had to be something for a trailer. And it was only when they were putting that together did things start to click for them about what the universe of Halo was going to be. So the game's premise at this point basically involves a human transport starship that crash lands on a mysterious ring world. Early versions of the Covenant arrive to loot what they can and war erupts between them and the humans. Unable to match what is they consider to be a technologically advanced alien race, the humans have to resort to guerrilla warfare. So at this point, the concept that Bungie kind of presented to the world was that Halo was going to be an open world game with terrain that reacted and deformed from explosions, a game that had persistent environment details like spent shell casings, variable weather, and so on and so forth. I mean, at this point, there wasn't even a Master Chief. The guy that looks like Master Chief in the Halo trailer was simply called the cyborg to the team at that point. And like I said, it was still a third-person shooter. When Halo was shown at E3 six months later, five months later in June 2000, it was still being presented as, as a, and being worked on as a third-person shooter. But people were excited for it, right? People were geeked. Eric, do you remember that at all? Like Halo before it was the Halo that we know? Do you remember oh, any of the hype? No, not at all. I mean, yeah, it was me either. a Mac showcase that was an Apple thing and just the anger that came out of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, things were looking up for Bungie at this point, but it wasn't, unfortunately, it wasn't all rainbows and sunshine. The company was running out of money as they were making Halo. They were surviving on sales of Myth the Fallen Lords. And like I said, there was another team that had was making at this point about to complete a sequel called Myth 2 Soul Blighter. And Myth 2 was ready to go. They put it into production. Uh, about 200,000 copies were produced in anticipation of its December 1998 launch date. And somehow someone discovered a glitch that caused it to completely wipe the contents of the directory it was installed into. Whoopsie. So they had to recall the copies and issue a fix. And that cost the company $800,000 which pretty much put them like at the verge of bankruptcy, shutting down, so on and so forth. So they had no choice. They sold a share of the company and publishing rights to Take-Two Interactive, but even the cash infusion from Take-Two wasn't going to be enough to save them. So they started reaching out to other companies, and somehow they got put in touch with Ed... They got put in touch with Ed Fries, the head of Microsoft Game Studio and proposed that he acquire, quote unquote, Bungie as a studio. You know, Microsoft at the time was developing the software lineup for their first video game console, the Xbox. And Microsoft was interesting, interesting and interested. So they started negotiating with Take-Two. They, what ended up happening is that 
Microsoft would gain Bungie. Ed Fry's only wanted Halo and the team. And Take-Two could have basically all of Bungie's back catalog. And that's how they all negotiated. So on June of 2000, Microsoft announces the acquisition of Bungie. They get Halo. They get the team. Take-Two gets Marathon, Myth, Oni. Take-Two gets all of that. And so now the team is making a launch title for the Xbox. The design team, the team at Bungie kind of recalls that at this point, Halo had kind of like evolved into a story about whomever was behind the gun. They hadn't quite figured out who was behind the gun, but they knew it was that guy in that cool iconic armor from the, the Halo trailer. And in order to actually feel like you were firing a gun, like you have to have a connection. The controller has to have a connection with the gameplay. And the whole team felt like the third person concept distanced the player too much from that notion. So at that point, they decided that a first person shooter was the way to go. But, you know, one of one of the things that Eric already talked about was that first person shooters on consoles were like they were rare. No one no one was making them. We had Goldeneye and then I don't think what I mean, what else do we have? And Goldeneye was 97, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there was tons of ports of Doom and Wolfenstein, but nothing that really immersed you in an environment that wasn't encased in four walls. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, we didn't get Half-Life till 99. So, um, I mean, there was there was really nothing, um, nothing to compare to. So that was that was like one of the first things that they had to address. And we kind of talked, you know, recalled some of his memories. It was Jamie Griesmer who made that possible. He basically wrote code. It's really fascinating just to kind of sum it up. It discerned player intent and assisted like assisted their movement and aiming without being obvious. So basically like it like up until then, the way it was designed was that like your controller movement would actually be your movement. But the way he designed it, the game kind of buffers the endpoints inputs and kind of assumes what you're doing. And it feels more fluid because it's not so jarring of just like go left, go left. It's 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 really interesting. Basically, he created something that like the, the, the controller movements assume what you're going to do rather than actually recording what you're doing. And that made it feel better to everybody. Which is good because that's kind of what Halo's famous for, you know? So the team gets to work. In order to meet the deadline of the Xbox launch, they had to scrap a lot of ideas. Obviously, the open world concept had to go. We didn't get an open world Halo until the most recent entry. They had to cut their campaign down to size. One entire level was cut and became a cutscene. And believe it or not, about four months before release, the team decided that the multiplayer that Halo was famous for was no fun. So they scrapped what they had done multiplayer-wise and completely rebuilt it from scratch four months before release. I mean, there's just so much about Halo, but the thing of it is, is they finished it. They released it to the world on November 15th, 2001. During the two months following its release, it sold alongside more than 50% of all Halo consoles five months in that was 1 million units and it was basically heralded as the next latest and greatest thing right it's metacritic score is 97 out of 100 rob already said he didn't have an xbox i didn't have an original xbox 
Eric, you said that you bought it and played it with all your college roommates, right? Oh, yeah, I bought it on launch day. Like a silly man, I whim. <laughs> you bought everything on launch day. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. that was our thing. So once it became an Xbox, like I, I don't remember it from the Mac point, but I do remember it once it became a Microsoft thing. Do you remember the hype leading up to the launch? Oh, yeah. The, the launch of Halo was the, the main centerpiece. And then you had like NFL fever and then a couple games they tried to push. What? Oh, I don't remember <sighs> any of the others. Do you remember any of the others? It was an attempt at like a mascot like Mario meets crash but i just can't remember it now that microsoft owns crash mario meets crash yeah something like that they they tried to figure out their own mascot it just wasn't any good let's see so they had exhibition discs that came out the first exhibition disc had halo madden 2003 nfl fever 2003 good call panzer dragoon Quantum Redshift, Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell, Time Splitters 2, Toe Jam and Earl, and Whacked. I don't know any of that. <laughs> Whacked. Uh, let's see. What are the launch titles? Real quick. Launch titles. Games dated November 15th, 2001. November 15th, 2001. Where are you, November 15th, 2001? Let's see. Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2X, Test Drive Off-Road Wide Open, Shrek. That's a good one. Project Gotham Racing. I remember. I remember how much they pushed that one. Oddworld. Oddworld was probably the weird one, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, but that's probably what I'm thinking of. And then we had all of all of the Oh, Dead or Alive. How could I forget Dead or Alive? Dead or Alive was a big push on the new one. And Fusion Frenzy. We played Fusion Frenzy. Um uh, we definitely played Fusion Frenzy. Arctic Thunder, Cell Damage, Dark Submit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, among those, Halo Halo is definitely the one. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. I mean, what do you remember? I, 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 I mean, mind blown. This is one of those mind blown moments for me. So for me, it was just like, wow, I got this. I like first person shooters. This is a great story you can blow through it and then all of a sudden wait i can play with somebody at the same time in the story and not get frustrated with multiplayer sign me up so i remember being in awe of it but hating the concept of a of a console shooter i was still not about console shooters when we moved in with one another and you had to win me over on that concept. Like, you're the only reason why I got back into console shooters. <laughs> Which would have been Halo 2, probably. Halo 2, for sure. I know. Halo, I mean, we'll do an episode. We'll, we'll get, probably get you back. But Halo 2 is like, the fidelity of Halo 2 was amazing. Like, the way the graphic, like, that was a generational leap in graphics. So Graphics, the story, the spike in difficulty. Dear I God. I know. The first but level. I, I just I remember I remember not being like as much as I was like, oh, cool. It's a sci fi first person shooter. Great story. I get the hype also. But also, like, I don't want to play this because I can't stand playing on a controller. Can't stand playing on a controller. So 
Yeah, you with the small hands couldn't fit a dupe yeah, controller in your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, those original Xbox controllers were huge. No. My God, were they huge. I want to know who modeled those controllers. Like, this is perfect. <laughs> and then and then this is still, like, you said you bought four controllers. So, of course, this was popular for split screen. But didn't we have LAN gaming with this, too? Oh, oh yeah you can get like 16 player matches yeah. you get like people i mean it's where you got the image of that kid taped up on the wall playing the game <laughs> or the ceiling. ceiling he's wrapped up in duct tape on the ceiling yeah i mean that, that's what happened i mean we you just bring four xboxes four tvs and bam you've got a huge party i'd say that this is probably the last hurrah for land gaming this generation right because by the time we moved into 360 that generation like during xbox original xbox we got xbox live and the internet became more prolific so by the time we got halo 2 we were already pretty much into that like online gaming period oh yeah i mean we were um, finding ways to trick the xbox into thinking it was a LAN on online <laughs> we were playing people across the country we so it were was crazy and then we got xbox live and didn't have to do that anymore so that's fun lots of fun yeah i i we ended up going back to play this i mean you know this is this came out before we lived together and i was not a fan of console gaming but we went back to play this did we do it before Halo 2? I know we did it with Legacy, like when Anniversary came out. We've gone back to play through this, but did we ever do it prior to that? I think we yeah, did. Yeah, we, we did because we were preparing for the sequel. Yeah, we were preparing for Halo 2. And hence that started our tradition of playing every single Halo game on Legendary. Yes. Which we, we've done them all until this most recent one, which I just had patch for them putting in multiplayer took forever that's very true that was a lot of it by the time we got multiplayer into the new halo we hit all kind of moved on with halo so yeah 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 i don't know that was a good time it was a it was a really good time that, oh, for to, sure. to say that halo changed everything for console gaming is kind of an understatement i don't know if i mean there's always the argument right that something will take its place but we this definitely started like a new generation of first person shooters on consoles it popularized it for sure for sure oh yeah i mean then every game became a halo killer every game became a halo clone or a halo killer yeah the multiplayer mode that they modeled in halo became like just think about that. We didn't have anything like this before, right? Like no. we didn't have anything like this before, even like what maybe quake. Now nah, we had a little bit of it because you had like quake deathmatch and an unreal. You had all that. So we kind of did have deathmatch modes there. We you had it on the PC, PC, but not on the console. Yeah. And that's that true. wasn't what people wanted. You know, you, you think that 
you, you had your hardcore computer nerds really playing those type of games, not the sweaty jocks and all that stuff with, you know, usually sports games and, and now adding Halo. They finally got their hands on that, and I can just take this over here. I plug it into this. Super simple. I don't need to buy a ton of stuff and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on an outdated thing. And bam, it's great. It's great. It's hard to believe that it's been 22 years. It's been 22 years. Hey, just because Halo can drink now, you don't need to badmouth it. Well, but the funny part is, is we were talking about we were talking about in the beginning. Our earliest video game memories are of Super Mario. If you subtract 22 years from Super Mario, there are no video games. There weren't even arcades 22 years before Super Mario was released. And it always blows my mind to take a moment and think about that. Like how far we've come as like in its entirety. You know what I mean? Like 71 it, it's Pong and, and space computer space. Now that is 70, 71. Uh, it just, we're getting old. It was almost all dead in the water with ET. It was almost all dead in the water. That, that pesky video game crash that happened right before I was born. <laughs> but I mean, that's not, I mean, it's the truth though. You know, it, you know, you've got 40 some years. 50 some years of video games. Atari just celebrated their 50th anniversary. So uh, 50 some years and we've only we haven't even had Halo for half of it. Halo, one of the most iconic gaming series of all time. It just kind of it's kind of crazy to think about. I hate it. I hate getting old. (laughs) It's okay. Oh, righty then. Well, you know, Normally, this is about the time that we talk about the legacy. I'm not even going to bother with the legacy. We all know that Halo is a series. We could probably do an entire episode on every game in the series. It has spawned a multimedia franchise that has, you know, spinoffs. Like, they got back to real-time strategy with Halo Wars. It's got books. It's got a movie or two. Two movies, right? Forward Unto Dawn and... What's the other one? That's two. Yeah. Things that... uh. <laughs> anime spectacular of different I can't animators animators movies a tv show now that which we do not talk about it, it just it, i mean halo is a whole franchise of course bungie doesn't own them anymore that's a whole nother story bungie went on to do destiny which is eric's favorite game in the whole wide world it's I still- just addicting you it, the funny it's thing the, the funny thing is is you play destiny like i play rocket league like if we compared hours i have 1200 hours put into rocket league you probably have that much put into destiny let's be I, fair let's say i know <laughs> no. but it's that bungee core of like seven amazing minutes of gameplay in a loop yeah so you're constantly like feeding an addiction yeah, I mean that's existed from from in their campaigns the whole time when you're spending that seven minutes going from checkpoint to checkpoint to checkpoint, you know. That that loop has been around forever. And it's been great. So yeah. Everyone that's been involved with Bungie and 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 the Halo franchise, Halo franchise is still kicking, Bungie's still kicking, everyone's doing great. That's that's not going anywhere. So um that's not going anywhere 
I mean, your definition of great for them right now may be a little exaggerated. Hey, you got to be excited because you got what's the next what's the next destiny? The final shape or something like that. I, I only it's made the final it. shape. It's been delayed. There's a they fired their longtime composer. I mean, there's a lot of things going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the final shape of what? This is not shaping up to be very good. No, the community's mad. So is it called the final shape because it'll be the last of it? Like they're going to be done with, with destiny two and moving it on to is another the final story of the light and dark saga before they move on to another story in there. Oh yeah. Okay. 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 We'll, we'll, we'll go with that for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm Whatever. sure in what, five more years, the podcast will be talking about the first destiny and we can talk about how, how broken and convoluted that was. I, that's true. We can, we can all speak to that one. We played the sh- crap out of the first destiny, man. I know that one was a lot of, that was that one. That one was great. That one was fantastic. Gunplay. It's the, the controls, Still everything feels... they do with that is like perfect. Yeah. Gunplay still feels fantastic with it. So, but yeah, five more years when this podcast is still going. Of course, we'll have episode after episode after episode. It'll be episode, I don't know, 300 and something by that point, 400 and something. And of course, if you want to keep up on all of our episodes, you can do so by going to our website, which is www.memorycardlane.com. Hey, Rob. Yes, Dave. What can people do on our website? Well, Dave. People can find a calendar of previous and future episodes. You can find links to things such as our Discord, where you can come hang out with Dave and I, talk games, or just whatever the hell you want. Or you can tell David how wrong he is all the time. You can find links to things such as our Patreon for for a couple of bucks. You can help support our podcast in the week-in, week-out venture that we do, as well as getting access to both unedited and ad-free episodes. And you can find links to things such as our social media, where I can be found on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong. Each week, we like to teach you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. You know, game, person, console, technology, just something. Well, doing so, we hope to teach you something new about it, the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration or what it gave back as its legacy. Of course, it's always a pleasure to get to teach you new topics because when we teach you things, we learn things. It's a beautiful teaching learning cycle that all people who teach love and a recognition of the beauty that is teaching and learning. We like to talk about our takeaways from each episode. So Eric, I'll start with you. What did you learn today? Oh boy. Oh boy. What's oh your biggest boy. takeaway? What's your biggest takeaway? I mean, I, I think you just forget that before marathon Bungie was doing other things and then they had a failed studio and take two owns their back catalog at some point (laughs) i don't know who owns that any i mean they do i don't know who owns all that at some point like when bungie and what 343 studios or whatever it is and i don't i don't know who owns microsoft let bungie go they had to give up halo that was the only thing yeah halo was microsoft's yeah so maybe that's the way it still goes. Maybe that's why we don't have a marathon. Well, y- you know, they're working on a new marathon game. Yes. So and streamers hated it. <laughs> yes, they did. 
<laughs> yeah, they did. I was going to avoid that one, but yeah, they did. So, yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Bungie was Bungie before they were sci-fi Bungie. I mean, their first game was like, their first game had you like traversing underground passages in an ancient pyramid to kill like Zool or some crap like that, you know? So, Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, I learned a whole hell of a lot about Bungie and Halo in general, but I think that my favorite takeaway had to be that Paul Russell felt that the name Covenant was stupid. And they then became the main antagonist of the Halo series. <laughs> like that yeah. name's stupid. Let's make him the enemy. Yeah, that's yeah, classic. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. That's a really good one. So that's my big takeaway. What about yourself, Dave? What uh, what's your takeaway? What did you learn? I what, just yeah. I like I like that Bungie's first studio was a crack house next to a girl school. OK, that's a pretty good. T- that's a good one, too. <laughs> I mean, like. It always fascinates me how these studios got their starts, you know, and and there's so many that like they struggled. They struggled and they were nothing and they had a good idea and they made it work and they became something, you know, that's a I mean, obviously, we mostly talk about games that people like. So you're going to see that story again and again. But like a lot of these stories, there is a point in which it doesn't look like they're going to make it. And that was certainly the case for for, you know, them doing a game in a crack house type deal (laughs) on Chicago's South Side. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. You know, fun times. So, yeah, that's that. That's Halo. That's that's Bungie's early history into Halo 1. I mean, of course, we could take any single part of Halo. It's such a popular game. It's so iconic. It's so well documented. You can do an episode on the music and you can do an episode on the design. You can do an episode on everything. So, like, there's no shortage if you want to learn about Halo for popping online and 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 just diving in wherever you guys want. It's it's a lot of fun to kind of see how combat evolved. Get it? Get it? Get it? Ah, good one. Yeah. Speaking of that title, that was put on by Microsoft because, like, again, people thought Halo was a city, a silly, like, phrase. So Combat Evolved was suggested so they could, like, light it up with other, like, futuristic military shooters, like, in a marketing deal. So, um, anyway. Anyway. All right. Well, we did it. We did Halo. We did Bungie. We learned about pathways to darkness and, and minotaur and and that bungie bungie west had a single game we did it rob before i take it into next week is there anything you'd like to add to today's episode well dave as always i do want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to everyone for listening it means the world to us we really appreciate you supporting us and just letting us know how you feel about things and just generally being here and also, a big shout out to Eric. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad that Dave had someone to reminisce with that could actually understand things from the, the days of old, because it sure as hell ain't me. So thank you for joining us. Uh, sometimes it's fun to hear your your uh, youth in this. It is. It really is. It really genuinely is. I try to explain that to people, that that cracks me up every time. You know, I mean, it's like you look at a tape player and like, what does this do? <laughs> oh, hey, now. Hey, now. <laughs> I used to jam out on some old tapes. Let's, let's, I know, let's not go I... that far. 
But it's kind of what it is with video games, with how fast they've, you know, yeah. changed. I mean, we've seen we've seen completely. We've seen it in its entire, almost in its entirety. You know, like it just has come such a long way. I mean, Atari's your eight track. Nintendo's your, you know, cassette tape CDs. The Super Nintendo Genesis era, and then you just keep moving up until you get to MP3 World. And now we don't even have physical games anymore, pretty yeah. much. So. Fun, fun, fun. All right, Eric, thank you. It's been a, it's all, I mean, yes, you know, it's always, always a pleasure. I know. We don't get to hang out enough anymore. That's our it's own darn fault. You could do man. <laughs> what the hell, life? What the hell, I life, know. for getting in the way? Ruining um, our good time. Ruining all the fun that we used to have sitting around doing nothing. Yeah, adulting. Adult, being an adult sucks. Next week. We're going to take a look at the game that was named Best Role-Playing Game of the Year 2007. Any idea? Any idea? Anyone have an idea? These are Rob? Larry. N- n- no. The Sims. Also, no. Sims would have been way earlier, like 2004, I think. Oh, I thought maybe The Sims 2 then. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I don't know. Is it, is it weight result? Yes, it's weight result. No, this is another futuristic sci-fi shooter. This is a third-person shooter, though. It's another game that's regarded as one of the greatest of all time. It's a science fiction action role-playing game. It's known for interactive storytelling and its cinematic design. Any other ideas from 2007? Fallout 3? Nah. Released in November 2007, Mass Effect has started a series. Mass Effect is now a series that is loved by millions of gamers across the world. We actually just got a teaser for a new Mass Effect like six days ago on November 7th because it's in seven day. So we just got a teaser for a new Mass Effect. Really popular series. We're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to learn where it comes from. And we're going to tell you the history of Mass Effect. So join us again next week because I would like to share with you my favorite game on the Citadel and yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Do the thing. Do 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 do